Hello again, friends, and welcome to a very special edition of the 605 Super Podcast, where we're going to look at Vader, who just passed away earlier today as we're recording. Big Van Vader, Leon White, he's had many different names. Well, Leon White's his real name, but he's had many different aliases in the world of professional wrestling, and we're going to talk a little bit about them today. I wanted to quickly get something up for the listeners of the Super Podcast, so we kind of put this together in a rushed fashion, and I apologize for that. By the way, if you're new to the program, I'm your host. The great Brian Last, and I'm very happy to be joined today in the co-host chair by not just a great friend of the show, not just a man who's been a great guest on the show, but someone who is now the host of his very own show right here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, and that show is Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam and Sean Goodwin, and we are joined by John McAdam. John, how are you this week? I'm doing okay. I'm, you know, certainly sorry to hear about Vader's passing, but um, I do know that it's been an uncomfortable last two or three years for him. So, yeah, and I guess he had been sick just recently. He had been in the hospital battling pneumonia, and that is unfortunately uh, his final battle. And I know he has had a lot of heart issues. I believe, even though he had wrestled last year, I think his last match is 2017, but. A big guy, and he certainly leaves behind a big legacy. John, so many people got to know your name in years past, either seeing it in the Wrestling Observer newsletter or possibly on a tape trading list. I don't know. I've heard rumors. And based on the time that you were involved with watching everything that happened in wrestling and potentially having a tape trading list, those were the years certainly that Vader really made a name for himself. What do you remember about when you first saw Vader? What do you remember about when you first heard about Vader, or at that time, Big Van Vader? Well, when I first saw Vader, and let me make this clear, I am not trying to be disrespectful at all, quite the opposite. When I first saw him on AWA television, I didn't just dislike him. He was like my least favorite wrestler. He was this you know, kind of balding, uh, chubby guy. He's obviously big, and they billed him as a former NFL All-Pro interior lineman, which at, at this point, I owned a football encyclopedia, and I looked it up, and I'm like, okay, this guy didn't play very much at all. He was legitimately a second-team All-American at the University of Colorado, which is a big deal. And um, so, like I said, whatever charisma is, this guy had the opposite for me at first. And he had a match against Stan Hansen where Stan beat the crap out of him. And then one Saturday morning on WPIX, they had Bruiser Brody against, uh, what do they call him, Bull Power Leon White. And Brody just kicked the hell out of him. And I enjoyed every minute of it. I watched that match over and over again just because I loved seeing this Leon White guy getting beaten up. And here's the thing. Well, I want to and this is the tribute show, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this is the tribute show because this is a tribute. It is because Vader turned it around and I became a huge fan. He didn't just start from ground zero with me. He was like in the negatives and I grew to love the guy. Um, I want to say he was 89. He was having great matches in Japan and when those tapes showed up, I mean he, you know, here's a guy who's a super heavyweight out there having three star matches, four star matches and he was, you know, he wasn't being carried. He was carrying his way through the match. And by the time 92 came around and he won the WCW title, I was both shocked and elated. 
because I knew, I, I thought at least, that WCW, who was not good at all at creating superstars, had just created a really good one. And it's amazing that by that point, if you had read the wrestling magazines or knew anything about him, you knew that this is a guy that in a relatively short period of time won the world title in the CWA with Otto Vons, won the world title, I believe, the UWA in Mexico, and of course the IWGP Championship in Japan. So within a few short years, that's four major world championships. Well, I'm you know being nice to the CWA by saying a major world championship, but those are four world championships right there that... Vader, Big Van Vader at that time, did hold. When it comes to you seeing him, and of course seeing those tapes coming out of Japan, what did you think when he first became Big Van Vader? And of course that famous first night where he pins Anoki after about three minutes and a riot ensues. I mean, I was I was blown away by it. I mean, I saw the gimmick with the helmet and the steam coming out of the shoulder pads, and I was like, "This is going to be huge money." And I'm I'm still in this in this phase with Vader. Why are they wasting it on Leon White? But he got so much better so quickly. I mean, obviously the guy worked really hard to get where he was. And I mean, I'll be the first to say it on this show: a guy that size doing a moonsault. It was it was unthinkable at the time, and here he was pulling it off, and he pulled it off you know quite well. He landed perfectly. No one at least got hurt getting his moonsault, as far as I know of. And of course, one of the most interesting little trivia items in wrestling history: who was originally scheduled to be Big Van Vader for New Japan Pro Wrestling? The answer: Jim Helwig, the Ultimate Warrior. So history certainly could have turned out very differently for a lot of people if he had become. Big Van Vader, not gone to the WWF, gone to Japan. And of course, we would not know the man that we know of Vader, the man they call Vader, I should say. But John, one of the things, and you'll hear it later on in the show in a conversation I have with David Bixenspan, a lot of people look at to that feud with Sting. And a lot of people seem to think that he was Sting's greatest opponent. What do you think? I would say that Mick Foley was Sting's greatest opponent. Either Sting or, no, actually, I would go Flair Foley, Vader. Off the top of my head really quick, I probably need to watch some matches, but that that would be my order. Interesting. Foley before Vader. Yeah, I mean, some of the Sting-Foley matches, and they were just like on syndication shows, and, and Foley was giving this guy, giving Sting everything he had, and just, you know, you wake up on Saturday morning, and you'd see this crazy good Sting-Foley match. But like I said, I, I that, that's a quick answer, and I could be wrong. You were getting tapes, you were seeing and hearing what was coming out of Japan about Vader, where he was a top star for New Japan. What did you think when all of a sudden in 1990, a chaotic year for WCW, of course, during this period of time, Ole Anderson's the booker, and Vader's being brought into WCW here and there? Yeah, it it looked like... It almost looked like what they, uh, what they were doing with Hansen, where if this guy was home and really wasn't doing anything, they would bring him in to as a special attraction on the show. And that's really why I was so surprised when he won the title in 92, because that just seemed to be his role. And all of a sudden, he got the belt. He got the belt. He loses it pretty quickly to Ron Simmons, and then he gets it back. And then it's like his real title run. Then it feels like Vader's really the champion for an extended period of time. It was kind of shocking they got the belt off Sting to me as quickly as they did, you know, considering he had just beat Luger earlier that year. And then they got it off Vader to Simmons pretty quickly. And then it got back to Vader and it kind of stabilized for a period of time. 
if I recall correctly, and I hope I'm not getting my years mixed up, Sting was battling through a whole bunch of nagging injuries, and I think he wanted some time off. If I'm, if I'm getting my years mixed up, I apologize, but I think that's what was going on in 1992. I've never heard of anyone in WCW wanting time off. So I, I, I know, and getting paid for it at the same time. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, but what did you think of him in WCW? I mean, that was really for American wrestling fans, and I guess a lot of fans even in Europe. That was the first real showcase of Leon White as Vader. What did you think of that run? I, I thought it was really good. I mean, I remember them bringing him in for that. I, I want to say it was the Super Brawl show in 91 where he had that crazy brawl with Stan Hansen. And it was thoroughly enjoyable. And like I said, you know, at the risk of repeating, if I do, I apologize. I just got it in my head that, okay, this guy is a special attraction just for certain pay-per-views. I thought coming into the 92 bash, you know, okay, he's going to lay down for Sting. It's his time. And when he won the belt, I was, I was nothing short of elated. It's pretty crazy. If I had told you in early 92 that by the summertime, Vader would be the world champion and Terry Gordy and Steve Williams would be the world tag team champions. Would you have believed it? Ah, uh, I would have had a hard time believing it. But given the fact that Watts had started, I want to say March or, or April of 1992, he had come in. And if you had told me that Watts was going to go for a uh, first Gordy and Williams, who he pushed hard in UWF. And secondly, Vader, who was a big guy who used to be an interior lineman for a Big 8 program, just like a guy named Bill Watts, I, I wouldn't have been shocked. John, in terms of tapes and things that people really wanted to see, how big was it when Vader fought Takata in the UWFI? I mean, those shows were always huge. People wanted to see those. And you have to remember, this is, was at a time where, you know, WWF and WCW, in my opinion, were both pretty terrible. And there were people who were looking to, to kind of fill that wrestling void. And the Japanese stuff, especially the big shows, uh, there was a demand for that. And he was such a big star in Japan, of course, not just with New Japan, not just with his Takata program at UWFI, but also with All Japan later in his career. And he would go to the WWF, and to so many people who are fans of Vader, they look at his WWF run as a disappointment. How do you see it, John? I see it as a disappointment as well. And one reason why you have to understand that, you know, everyone's expectations were really high. Um, by the time Vader had left WCW, it, I thought it was time for him to leave. I mean, we were all kind of excited about the Hogan Vader uh, program, which sounded good on paper. But now we're talking, what, 1994, 1995 Hogan? who, in my opinion, was outright terrible. And so that program was a big disappointment. And they, no one knew, they did not know how to book in WCW back then, which, by the way, gives Vader even more uh, credit for getting over in a company where they didn't create stars, they destroyed stars. But anyway, yeah, the WWF thing was a bit of a disappointment. You would think he, Vader had a really good pay-per-view match against Shawn Michaels, but he just didn't seem to get over as that like number one build around him main event at WrestleMania heel guy that we were kind of looking for. Well, with all of that said, let's get going with the rest of the show. What we're going to do is we're going to actually go from one clip right to the other, and we'll be with you again at the end of the program. But what we're going to hear right now is first 
a conversation with me and our friend David Bixenspan about the career of Vader, followed by a couple words from Scott Cornish, the wrestling humorist, popular co-host here on the program, followed by Jim Cornette sharing his remembrances of Vader. And let's get going with that right now. Here's David Bixenspan. We're talking Vader today here on the Super Podcast, and of course that means we have to welcome back our friend, the man they call Bix, David Bixenspan. Bix, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Of course that means you have to have me back. Of course. Well, you know what? I actually thought about it. I said, who would be the best person to be able to talk about every aspect of Vader's career? Who would know everything from Japan to Mexico to obviously what he did in America? And you were the first person that came to my mind. Let me ask you this, because this is something I've been playing with since the word got around earlier today that Vader has passed away. When you think of Vader, where do you go first? Do you go to Japan? Do you think WCW? What do you think first? I think I do think of WCW first. Me too. And I think a lot of people have been saying it. He may have been Sting's best opponent. Oh, I think he absolutely was Sting's best opponent. Absolutely was, but more than Flair. Well, here's why I say that. Flair, for the most part, it did get better like into the like early to mid-90s in their matches together. But Flair, for the most part, was having a Flair match with Sting. Although, like, some of their other stuff, like that match they had in 93 on Saturday night that went, like, 40 minutes is different, or some of their 95 stuff's a little different, a little more fast-paced. It's mainly just a flare match. Vader was making Sting better. Sting is never better than in those matches with Vader. He's more fired up. He has all these different high spots. His timing is better. Like, Sting... Sting is absolutely at his best in those Vader matches. Sting looks like the guy you always wanted Sting to be in those matches. And this isn't a shot at Sting, but that's really the only time he hits those absolute heights. And I can't think of anyone else that made Sting better like that. I think it also coincides nicely with the peak of Sting's career, 1992-1993. You know, in that range is really where everything came together. 92 was Mm -hmm. a great year for Sting. And the second half of that year was really the Vader stuff. And then 93, Sting had really finally gotten to a point and things would change in 94 with the arrival of Hulk Hogan. But, I, you know, there is an argument to be made, and you just made it pretty succinctly, that Vader was Sting's greatest opponent. Let's go back to the beginnings. We're kind of bouncing around. Let's go to Japan, which isn't really the beginning. But let's go. It's the beginning of Big Van Vader. It's not the beginning of Leon White, professional wrestler. Big Van Vader, or as he has been known various times before people figured it out, he was Big Ben Vader. No, Big Ben Vader. Big, with a B, Big Ben Vader. And then I know one time I saw him as Big Bang Vader. Well, when you use the the Google Translate on New Japan World, I believe it's like Big Bang Vader or Big Bang Vader or something like that. Well, he had a pretty famous debut as that character, of course, He had been Leon Baby Bull White for AWA for Vern Gagne, and he got this opportunity in Japan. They were going to create this character, Big Van Vader. It was going to be the Ultimate Warrior, Jim Helwig, and he ended up going to Titan Sports, and boy, did that change wrestling history right there in two two ways (laughs) at the same time. But Leon White gets the call, and he gets this gimmick, and it didn't get over right away the way they had hoped it would. No, because, okay, it's, what is it originally supposed to be? It's uh, it's supposed to be Vader and Sa- Masa Saito against, was it Anoki and Fujinami, I believe, is the what the match is supposed to be originally. But then there's all sorts of stuff with 
Takeshi Kitano, of all people, who was initially Vader's manager, issuing challenges, and then it turns into, like, Inoki and Choshu, but then it ends after a few minutes, and Vader challenges Inoki, and the crowd's throwing trash because they're not getting the match they were promised, and then Vader squashes Inoki. And that's his debut, and he squashed Inoki pretty quickly, and those fans were pissed off <laughs> they rioted to the point that new japan was suspended from sumo hall for like six months to a year maybe yeah. more has ever been footage that emerged of the actual riot part of it i don't think so i think everything i've ever seen was always edited down to pretty much just the match and a little bit of the angle so there's your debut you squash the legend of new japan pro wrestling people riot You would think, oh boy, this is doomed from the very beginning, but it didn't work out that way. He was such a unique super heavyweight, and he got better and better as the years went on, that he did actually work out in the role, and he really made it his own. I think, in a sense, it took time. I think part of it was that when he really got better and kind of things really started to click with him more is also when he shed the regular mask, so he was also able to use his facial expressions more. So I think that all just kind of clicked together and that allowed him to be like the guy he really became because even if he's eventually really good in the earlier part of his New Japan run through like, I guess, when does he take off the mask? Like 91? Like mid-91? Something like that? Somewhere in there. I mean, he went through various looks. Even if you look at his debut, like his bodysuit, and where right. be a year later, his look kind of went through several different changes at the very beginning. Right. But when eventually he goes to that trademark Vader strappy mask, is also really about when he came into his own as a great worker. So that he also adds that other element of the facial expressions. And then it was a little more of a unique look, I think, too, helped. And then also he goes to WCW, where he had a great kind of array of rivals. And I think maybe better suited opponents for him than he would have had if he had gotten that big WCW push earlier. And then it just everything clicks. Well, you know, he had that, that I was about to say that mask, but it wasn't that mask, that... What do you call it? The shoulder pads? The helmet. The helmet that he would wear that would shoot Okay, smoke. let's talk about the helmet. <laughs> when they first started showing those videos of Vader in early 1990 to push uh, his appearance at Wrestle War. Oh, no, not, not 90. No, 91's when he's at Wrestle War. So when they're, put, when they're showing, show, first showing the Vader videos in 90 on WCW I TV. I think it's against Tom Zink, maybe. Yes, yes, yes. That helmet. It's like, what is this? Who is this guy? How is he able to make it shoot steam? He's not holding anything, although I guess he probably had a remote in his glove or something. See, that's the interesting thing. By the time Vader really starts hitting his peak in WCW in 92, he gets the world title. He's the top heel, clearly, in the company. He had already been kind of around for a couple of years. You know, in 1990, he was in and out because he had the Japanese commitments, but he had the Stan Hansen match in WCW. He, of course, Mm -hmm. was in there to squash Tom Zink. He was in there at various other points, so... You were kind of familiar with him, but he never did anything to make a big impact. Until 92, they really went hard with Vader. Well, do you remember the Vader babyface turn in WCW? I don't. The original one. So in late 90, early 91, they actually shot two angles. I think in syndication, he saves Tommy Rich from the Freebirds. Oh, I did see the turn. Yes. And then on Saturday night... He ends up being Luger's mystery partner against Big Cat and Motor City Man Man. You know, now that you say it, I do remember that. And I remember at the time getting a kick out of, oh, oh, Vader? Okay, cool. And it seemed like it kind of got over at least live, but 
I guess because he's not a full timer at the time, he just kind of goes away, and then whenever he comes back, he's a heel again. Yeah, and you know, ninety two, it's after Luger leaves. They put him with Harley Race, which ends up really working out well. You know, it's interesting. I, you know, the two things that I think of from that period of time are the Joe Thurman match where he broke Joe Thurman's back. They replayed that over and over. They told you about it. Mm -hmm. And then, and it's one of those things where if you listen to it in New York growing up, it really had a big impact. But after the Mick Foley series of matches in 93, especially the one where he took the power bomb on the floor and his head hit the concrete. If you listen to John Arezzi's show back then, it was, you know, I touch and go if Mick Foley would ever do anything ever again. And, I remember Arezzi was really pissed off at Vader for being overly stiff with Mick during those matches. And that run right there with Cactus Jack kind of established Vader and, and the Joe Thurman thing as being potentially dangerous, which was an element that not a lot of wrestlers had. In that era, no, especially in WCW, which for a while was very like Turner sanitized because they were always so kind of paranoid on the corporate level. Yeah. But you had these real injuries that they played off of, even if, you know, in the cactus thing, I believe they were always planning to do basically the same angle, but make happen to legitimately get hurt. Like, I think the whole stretcher job and everything was always supposed to happen, but it did just give him this extra aura that he was pretty much like unfuckwithable in a way that no one else was at that time. Yeah, I mean, even as an example, when Hogan finally comes in and they finally program Hogan versus Vader, there were fans who wanted and even some that expected Vader to shoot on Hogan. I mean, that's the famous, there was a sign, shoot, Vader, shoot. They mm -hmm. expected him to just beat up Hogan because he was Vader. He was a tough guy. He beat people up. Of course, that wasn't exactly the way things worked, but there were certainly fans who had an expectation of Vader taking it out on Hulk Hogan, being rough with Hogan. Didn't Hogan also make him sign some sort of agreement not to work stiff with him? I don't know. Is that true? I've heard that. I I don't remember where. But... Well, ho hopefully not from Hogan, because then you know it's not true. Well, sure. <laughs> I guess you can't comment too much about that because of uh, some of the other things you've been involved with. But let's go back to Japan. What do you think separates Vader from Bam Bam Bigelow? Because they were both somewhat similar you know they're different enough but somewhat similar because they were super heavyweights who could really move and they both really started hitting with new japan at the same time what do you think separates the two 10 years the big one right off the bat with vader i think it helps that he's kind of this new japan creation and really became a big star through new japan although bigelow bigelow kind of did to a point but he left not long after he got his initial big push there and i but I think with Vader, what puts him over the top is that he had more of that killer vibe, at least after Bigelow came back from the WWF the first time. Because early Bigelow, I think we've talked about this before on this show, early Bigelow is very different from post-WWF Bigelow in terms of his style, his vibe, everything. And there's just something about that version of Bigelow with the flame suit and he didn't act the same and everything that it's just it doesn't have quite the same killer vibe that Vader did. And then, you know, Bigelow, you know, like I said, with tenure doesn't really stick around in Japan one or really go back even that often after he goes back to WWF and leaves again. 
And I think he's just not really remembered as a strong Japanese star, even though he really, he really was. He was making big money from the start there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's funny. Uh, we're talking about Vader's reputation for being stiff or, you know, being in situations like that. I've never been able to enjoyably watch Hansen versus Vader where his eye got ripped out. It just, it makes me so uncomfortable. I can't get into that match. I felt that way the first time I was watching it. But what you actually see is not that bad at all. You you see the swelling when he takes the mask off, but you don't actually see anything graphic. It's just the idea of knowing. <laughs> well, I've wondered happened. how exaggerated it is, too. Even though we all kind of take that story as gospel. That his eye popped out. He's popped, popped out. He's popping back in. Yeah. We should probably go back and see if there's any photos in any of the Japanese magazines or newspapers from that. See if anyone actually has the moment. Not that I would want to see it, but you could investigate that, Pix. I guess I can. <laughs> yes, you can. You love investigating stuff like that. But, you know, again, another instance is the flare, the, excuse me, the Foley match in 94 where Foley's ear pops off. It really wasn't Vader's fault. It was the ropes. But I could tell you mm -hmm. that when word started getting around at WrestleMania 10's Fan Fest, because I was there working at that as a teenager, the wrestlers who knew Mick and knew Vader were pissed. I remember Luna Vachon saying that, you know, Vader's such an asshole to me about it, because they had a card that Georgian Macropolis had going around, get well Mick Foley, get well Cactus Jack. I remember mm -hmm. everyone was quick to jump on Vader and blame Vader because he did have that reputation for hurting guys or being overly stiff with guys. Yeah. Um, do we have a good handle on though? How much of that is specific incidents versus him in general? Like, well, cause like at least with Mick, I, Mick was it, like in that first match. That's kind of called the potato match on Saturday night. The one that airs the week before the powerbomb match. Mick asked him to do all that. Didn't he? I think so. Yes. So, you know, Joe Thurman, uh, we also, I mean, we've heard was not intentional and that Vader was very upset that he had hurt him. No, but even like Shawn Michaels, who, look, had his own problems with being a baby on top of everything else, but he obviously had problems because he thought Vader was too stiff. Yeah, but I also wonder what was too stiff in the WWF yeah, that compared to elsewhere. Problem. Yeah, by the way, that says a lot about Sting. Sting never complained. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Th that's why I'm saying, that's part of why I'm saying that it's a, like. We have a few incidents that we point to, but how much of it is like more there were times where he would get carried away versus this was a pattern? I mean, that could be it. I mean, those punches definitely did look pretty rough in a lot of matches, but I did want to talk about something else, Bix. You know, the mystique Vader had for toughness, there was another mystique too, and I'm sure you remember when you would pick up a magazine before he really got there in 92, but after he'd already made his initial appearances in 1990. Mm -hmm. And you would see this is a guy who held the world title in Mexico, in Japan, for CWA, for Otto Vons. There was a mystique that he was a guy, actually, a worldwide champion in multiple countries at the same time. Yes, I was going to bring that up. That you got the vibe from the magazines, from seeing that photo, and then they would push it in WCW, too. World champion in three different promotions on three continents. That he was the biggest international wrestling star in the world was how it came off. And I think that helped his vibe with the type of fans who would read the magazines and kind of pay close attention to the commentary and stuff like that. Because if you saw those pictures of him with the three belts 
and you knew that it was like kind of legit that he was it was really champion all these places it made him seem like this kind of secret attraction you know what i mean that like oh you're being let in on that this guy who's actually the biggest wrestling star and the toughest wrestler in all of the other countries I agree. And, you know, that's what he kind of brought into WCW. It wasn't unrealistic to see him as a world champion because if you did get the magazines, you saw him with multiple world championships already at that point. And he gets there and he gets the world title. And he's really in that top position from the moment he goes full time to WCW up until, I guess, before he leaves. I mean, they turn him babyface at the end. Unfortunately, so many people, when they think of Vader now, they think of specific instances like the Paul Orndorff fight. Or when he was on Raw and he slipped and he fell off the apron, he jumped off the apron. Michael's yelling at him. Michael's yelling at him. Unfortunately, people look at moments like that and it's easy to overlook some of the other things, but he really was. I mean, let's talk about him now in the ring, Bix. Is Vader, in your eyes, the best big super heavyweight worker of all time? I think so. And I think the, the thing that would get him the nod over Bigelow would be consistency. I think at, you can make an argument that at his best, Bigelow is the best of of the super heavyweights, but Bigelow would just wasn't that consistent. You know, he, he was incredible. The thing that never I never get with Bigelow is why is his best run as a rookie? Money. You think it just kind of changed him? I don't know if it changed him. I mean, I don't want to go too deep into Bam Bam here. We could definitely do that discussion on a later But so much of it was attitude and how much he carried himself. That's what I'm saying. That's what I don't get about it. Yeah, he he lost some of that explosiveness because he's a big guy and I'm sure his knees got bad. But he just – he loses a lot as time goes on. He loses that vibe and that was a lot of what he had. And then in some places he just wasn't as good. And Vader, I think, is more consistent, has more great matches. Yeah. And it's really that resume. It's over time, I think, that puts him at the top of the list. You know, compared to, like, look, as good as Yokozuna was, based on where he was working and who he was working with, he doesn't really have that resume of great matches. You know, Bix and Vader had so many matches that we think of that were really good. Even some of the Shawn Michaels stuff was really good. And, of course, the Sting matches, lots of other stuff in Japan. What in your eyes are some of the underrated matches he's had that people don't necessarily look at or focus on, but is actually a really good example of just how good he was? The big one that jumps right to the front of my mind is Dustin Rhodes. They had two matches together that I know of. The one everyone remembers is Clash of the Champions 29, November 94, which they put on just kind of cold. And ends up being an incredible match. I mean, it's similar to the Sting matches in style. And probably Dustin's best singles performance in WCW. They have a WCW Saturday Night match a month later, which obviously it's not on the network yet, but it is on YouTube on Monsoon Classics channel. And is also really good. And the Clash match, I kind of almost wish it happened earlier in their runs in WCW. Because obviously, even if the... You know, the thing with Dustin getting fired for not something that wasn't his fault didn't happen with Hogan around. He probably wasn't really going to go anywhere. But the way Vader works with him and that it's Vader just kind of toying him with him for a couple minutes. And then Dustin just gets pissed off, double legs him and starts pounding him. And the crowd goes nuts. And he just works with him in this way that brings him up to his level so much 
and nothing really comes of it. And I think it's also one of those things where it did get positive reviews at the time. I think it's kind of underrated because Dustin was still in a lot of people's heads in the newsletters and stuff as not being as good as he was, which that's another conversation for another day. Just how much the whole Dusty narrative shaped how hardcore fans looked at Dustin no, Rhodes. That's, that's actually a great discussion point. Maybe he wasn't great at first, but he was always good. And like, it, it's weird that fans had this like secondary Wyndham that they looked at as being kind of shitty because he was Dusty's good. But anyway, that is that's the one that I would say first. Um, as far as just like fun TV matches and stuff, him working with Patriot and WCW was always really good. You know, like him and Flair against Patriot and Bagwell. Uh, I want to say there's a Nikita match that's really good in WCW. Just like stuff like that. Stuff that you think would be fun with Vader on paper is good. Uh, the Simmons match where Vader regains the yeah. title that they put on WWE Network a few weeks back is very, very good. One thing that's really cool about it is like Harley Race is on the house mic just yelling the whole match. <laughs> like screaming no pain and stuff and it actually works. <laughs> Yeah, the the other Simmons title change is real good. Like, Vader works his ass off to make that moment be what it should be. The Baltimore one you're talking about. Well, they're both Baltimore. They did both title changes in Baltimore. Oh, I, I had forgotten that the second one was in Baltimore. I mean, the first one, I actually really enjoyed that because the intensity, and especially, mm -hmm. you know, the crowd really getting into Simmons winning the title. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I mean, I I actually am one of those people I think they could have done so much more at Ron Simmons at that very specific moment in time because uh, he was another guy who was getting better and better at that point but he would soon hit his wall <laughs> you know in terms of uh progressing as a wrestler i think yeah um as far as japan no one talks about his all japan run anymore and he was really good especially since he was already kind of broken down by then but he fits right in when he goes there and he has great matches with kabashi with masawa there is a kawada match which is kind of the the one that you would kind of think of as the dream match because of their styles. And I don't know if I've ever seen that, but I know it's good by reputation. Um, has that really good match with Masawa at the Dome. Has a really interesting match with Masawa where Vader regains the triple crown and kind of squashes him. But in like a really entertaining way because Masawa's injured, so they just had Vader run through him. Um, New Japan-wise, I would just say, you know, some of this is on New Japan World. Other stuff you'd have to seek out. Anything that just looks like fun, especially tag team matches with other super heavyweights, usually is. There are two Bigelow matches on New Japan World. The second one's bad. Eh, the first one's very good. There's a six-man that I was telling you I was just watching before we started recording, which is him, Bigelow, and Dr. Death against Masa Saito, Shinya Hashimoto, and Koji Katao. That's incredible. There's a ten-man that's like super heavyweight all-stars. It's like, I think it's Vader, Bigelow, Yokozuna's Kikina. TNT and maybe Samu, I think, against like all five of the top New Japan guys. So it's like, I think, Three Musketeers, Fujinami, and Choshu. That's really good. There's so much that like probably isn't like pimped with him that probably should be because there's all those like little like New Japan tags and stuff. Oh, and then of course, him and Big Low is a tag team, which doesn't get talked about that much anymore. The match people always talk about was the Steiners match, the title change. Which is good. I always liked the match they had with Mudo and Hase, which is, surprise, a bloodbath. Uh, even better. And also, uh, WCW match that it's on a major show but doesn't get talked about that's really good. And it's kind of what you would want out of that type of match, maybe even more than the Bigelow one. Vader and Mr. Hughes against the Steiners. 
from Clutch 19, January 92. Oh, and then finish my tangent. Well, it's not a tangent. This is what you asked me, but <laughs> doesn't really get talked about anymore, but it used to be. The boss man matches are awesome. Really? I haven't watched those in years. Oh, yeah, especially the first one. Well, you say boss man, you mean the guardian angel? Well, he's using two different gimmicks. He's boss and then guardian angel. Right. They work really well together. Probably would have been even better like a year or two earlier, but they work very well together. What about the Davy Boy series? You think that's a disappointment? I'd have to rewatch it. I always thought they were good. Disappointing, maybe. Um, the Flair stuff, I feel, is kind of disappointing other than the Starcade match just because Flair kind of lets him beat the shit out of him and it works. Yeah, see, I don't enjoy that. I hate to say it because I was one of those people so excited when Flair came back in early 93 and then they made him a baby face and I wasn't a big fan of the way they handled him. But the Vader matches always made me uncomfortable because at that point it was obvious that Flair was getting old and Vader just kicked the shit out of him. And I never enjoyed watching those. Matches. Oh, he roughed it. Well, OK, that's a match in terms of him hurting someone. I mean, depending on how much you consider hurting someone. I mean, he does bust Flair open a good bit in the, in the Starcade match. Yeah. Flair's mouth is just bleeding a ton by the end of that. And that wasn't going to happen. That was going to be what? Sid beating Vader for the title. And Originally, the, yeah. And then the Sid but, Arn Anderson scissors incident happened in England. Yes. But that is that is the best of the Vader-Flair matches, I think, though. I think the other ones aren't that good for some reason. I don't know why I'm they didn't seem to have that good I'm chemistry. I'm not a fan of that version of Babyface Flair that just takes an ass whooping. I'm not a fan of those matches. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, coming off a year where Vader had worked with Sting, worked with the Bulldog, worked with Mick Foley, I just wasn't a big fan of that, that version of Flair and those matches. I just never yeah. really liked it. But if we're going to go a little bit ahead now, he goes to the WWF, and when they did that angle with Gorilla Monsoon, I remember I was already a pretty jaded fan because I'd been reading The Observer for a while, even though I was a mm-hmm. kid. That was such an amazing angle. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I can't wait to see where they go with this. And, of course, they went nowhere with it. No, it was just an excuse to send them to Japan, and they don't follow up on it. Yeah. Let's think about this for a second. (laughs) The only two people ever to bump Gorilla Monsoon after he stopped wrestling were Vader and Brooklyn Brawler. That's right. Prime time. Nothing comes out of either of them, really. And no no one really remembers the Brooklyn Brawler one. Now they kind of start to because it's become a weird bit of trivia when people talk about the Vader one. But the Vader thing doesn't really go anywhere, unfortunately. And then he gets the Yokozuna feud, which is kind of fun on paper, but Yoko was not himself anymore because of the weight gain. So those are kind of disappointing. But let me ask you this. I mean, you know, we talk so much about the Shawn Michaels issues with Vader, and we've seen Vader, a version of Vader, as the top heel in WCW, as the heel world champion with a manager, Harley Race, obviously very different than having Jim Cornette as your mouthpiece, as he would have in WWF. If they had gone with that version of Vader, that killer version from WCW a couple of years earlier, if he had come in there, if he had gone over Brett, if he had gone over Sean, if he had won the title, do you think it would have worked at that point in time in the WWF? I think it would have worked. I question, though if the guys he needed to work with would have worked with him that way. The complaints about him smelling bad and not washing his gear. Is it me or do you only hear that from guys who work with him in the WWF? You know, I don't, I've heard that about his mask more so than everything else. I haven't heard it that much. You you would probably be more of an expert than me in this. But I feel like generally you hear that from people who work with him in the WWF and not elsewhere that much. And I I wonder what that means. It was a smelly time in wrestling. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, but you know, it's interesting. Vader was one of these guys for a little period of time there where wrestling really seemed, you didn't know what the future of wrestling was going to be. And if you read the newsletters, it was really depressing. And you just had to turn on your TV to just see how bad things were. There were several things that were really good for a few years there. Vader was one of them. Sabu was one of them. Terry Funk was one of them. The, uh, you know, when Monday Night Raw debuted, I think people, everyone says, oh, WWF in 1993 was horrible. Raw was actually pretty good in 1993. Mm-hmm. So that was one of those things. ECW gave you a little bit of hope early on. But for a few years there, Vader was kind of in the mix as that guy that hardcores would still look to. He had that reputation among smart fans because of Japan, because of everything he had done, and he could have good matches. And then all of a sudden, he's whipping out moonsaults, and you know he, he mm-hmm. really was one of the darlings of the smart fans for a long time. Yeah, and legacy-wise, something I think is kind of interesting to think about is how, as he leaves WCW, I think is the beginning of kind of like when the idea of heavyweight wrestling, at least in America, being good kind of starts to go away because, like, I feel like, you know, the last few years, especially on the independent scene, but also in WWE with the way things have gone with, like, people latching on to Braun Strowman, I feel like there's been a a bit of a renaissance from the hardcore fans and latching on to, like, super heavyweights and hosses. You know what I mean? And I feel like... The way everyone went crazy about Sid when he first arrived. Right, and Sid had a lot of charisma and was athletic, though, and at the time he was still green, so you thought he was going to get really good. You know what I mean? So it's like like people look back on Sid the wrong way, I think. But regardless, I think Vader leaving WCW kind of changed – it led to that perception because with once you don't have Vader and then there's no one really else that's like actively good on top and then it's like oh the cruiserweights are saving the company like i think that kind of contributed to the narrative where just for so long like big wrestlers were just looked at as kind of automatically bad i would say from like a period in like the mid 90s then for like a decade or so going on after that and we're finally gone in the direction now where people i think are just no matter what willing to see what someone offers but I think him leaving WCW and the way WCW's main event scene goes is a big part of that. Yeah, I mean, they also replaced him with a lot of really shitty bigger guys. That's sure. Of it. But even, like, looking back, like, Tenta is someone I think who's appreciated a lot more for how good he was now than he was then. Yes. I think he was graded on a curve because he was, you know, at least in WCW, he was kind of replacing Vader as a main eventer. And because he had not been working with guys who were that good in the WWF. I may be rambling a little too much, but I think you get the idea. In terms of the actual name Bix, there's an interesting little history there. Because originally he's, you know, despite the translation issues, let's say Big Van Vader. And then Uh when he starts having his issues with New Japan, he loses the rights to be Big Van Vader because they own the rights to Big Van. But they can't get the rights to Vader because George Lucas and Lucasfilm has that. So he gets to continue being Vader but he can't be called Big Van Vader. So now he just becomes the man they call Vader. Well, well, no. WCW, who is Vader. UWFI, who is Super Vader. And then WWF, he's the man they call Vader. That's that's right. That's Actually, that's the right way to do it. I forgot that uh, WWF and WCW, there was a distinct difference in how they announced him. And, of course, Super Vader in the UWFI. What do you think of his legacy with the Takata match in UWFI? Just going UWFI in general, I think it was just... How do I put this? I think what sticks out the most, even more than that, that, like his aura was such that UWFI wanted him 
you know, I think more because he was a world champion maybe than his actual, I think his aura helped, but I think it was more than anything else that they actually got one of the world champions to answer their challenge. But I think in the grand scheme of things, the big significance of it is how much money he got and really how much that speaks to his stardom at the time. How much money was it, Bix? Ooh, it was, I want to say it was at least fairly high five figures, like for the amateur. It might have been actually, now that I think about it, a little more. I think it was something like 250000 for the whole run, which of a few matches, maybe? It was a lot. It's interesting, too, because I'm thinking, you know, Gary Albright is one of the guys you think of with UWFI. And not that there's any comparison between the two, but it just made me think of what a 450-pound wrestler was like before Vader. You know, King Kong Bundy. You know, that's a 450-pound guy that was actually considered really agile for the time. Mm -hmm. And then look at Vader when he comes along. It changed the way a big guy could work and did work. Yes, I think part of it is just becoming like a national main eventer and a world champion too, because it's not like you didn't have agile big guys. You had Jerry Blackwell, who in a way was almost the most surprising because he was the least athletic looking of kind of like your famous agile super heavyweights. And he was short. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's I think that's kind of it. It's that he's this strong main eventer doing what he's doing. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, he shouldn't have been doing probably as many moonsaults as he did. But it's like it's something it's something cool to have now and then because it show it's like, oh my God. Um like he probably he probably didn't do it as much as he could have. He probably he wasn't Terry Funk with it. He didn't completely prostitute it. <laughs> but <laughs> But it's around uh, the same time that both guys debut it. I mean I could be wrong. I'm I'm going off the top of my head, but Terry Funk did it in what early ninety four? That's right around the and time. And Vader later. did it at Bash of the Beach ninety three or great excuse me, Beach Blast ninety three. Yeah, so it's, you know, within six months or seven months in that range mm -hmm. that all of a sudden the moonsault went from being this exotic move that only a few people could really do well to, hey, anyone could do it. <laughs> 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 right? It was Kenta Kabashi and Kijimuto had these amazing moonsaults, and then all of a sudden, hey, try this. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's mid-90s professional wrestling, folks. That's yeah. how it changed the wrestling business for the worse. <laughs> I did love too how Vader. I'm assuming to avoid ever injuring someone, always overshot it a lot on purpose, seemingly on purpose. Yeah, because I don't think he ever really hit it on anyone other than that one WWF squash match, right? And you know, it's interesting. We bring up Bigelow and Vader. Bigelow was never able to master the moonsault the way Vader did. In ECW, he finally got kind of got it to a real moonsault, but yeah, he always kind of did like a your uh, Alex Wright reverse body block as a kind of like spinning out of that into a splash. Yeah, I hated the way that looked. I hated the yeah. way that looked, especially after uh, you, after you see Vader do it, it looks like just such bullshit when you see another big guy try it and it just doesn't work out. In ECW, though, I remember he eventually did hit a proper moonsault. All right, I'll take your word for it. I don't necessarily remember that, but I'll take your word for it. Bix, you mentioned a few matches before from New Japan World. What other recommendations would you make? What other Vader matches do you think are important for people to look at? As far as big matches, the Stink series... Did I say Stink? The Sting series is <laughs> the big one, I think, especially in the U.S. Because those are, those are his best American matches... He's at his best. He looks like a killer. He has someone who's game and working with him and 
really meshing with him well. I would say that that's the big one. The Hogan stuff's underrated. I think it's better than it gets credit for a lot of the time. Cause, but they're still good, and they still feel like a big deal, especially the first one. It's that weird period of time with Hogan where mm-hmm. he, he's not muscular. I shouldn't say he's not muscular, but he's nowhere near as big or defined as he had previously been. He's in WCW. They're catering to him in every possible way. Flair, the Flair program is just ridiculous. They just kill Flair off. It was so good in early 94 that Hogan came and ruined everything. Mm-hmm. And then by the time he gets to Vader... You know, the fans were just hoping for something. And at that time, everyone was fed up with Babyface Hogan. Everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's why people can't look at those and say, oh, this is good. I, I mean, that's why I can't. And none of them have a finish. And the one he, everyone really remembers is the second one with Flair running in and getting beaten and all that. So I, I get why. But at least the, fir- the first one is kind of fun. It's, yeah, it's not necessarily what you would hope for, but it's, it's, it's good. I think it's worth watching just to see what Vader's able to do with him. I, in a similar way, that Duggan match, which is really Duggan's last really good performance, that I think is worth watching just to see like Vader elevating someone's own game again. Kind of like, you know, not to the degree maybe he did with Sting, although Sting is coming from a better place than 94 Duggan. But, you know, and that's a pattern with some of the stuff we talked about, that Vader could get great matches out of guys, sometimes guys who were having great matches, sometimes who are not. And if they were guys who already could have great matches, get even better matches out of them. But you keep thinking, like, just guys who he he was able to get better performances out of them than just carrying them. You know, like, Hogan is better than he had been in that match, in that first match with Vader. You know, like I said, Duggan, Sting is at his absolute best in those matches. Dustin is giving his best singles performances. Just, you keep going down the list, and it's just, they they are all better working with him. Some of Nikita's last really good performances are against Vader. You know, it's interesting. A what if, and you and I have done so many what ifs on this show, mm-hmm. could be what if Vader had not had everything go the, the way it had in 95. If he had stayed with WCW with the launch of Monday Nitro, even though he would have been a babyface at the start of it, what if he had been there? The guys he had been working with, what if all of a sudden Vader was working with some of those lighter wrestlers the light heavyweights the cruiserweights what do you think that would have been like if vader had stayed in wcw hmm you mean if he doesn't get punched out allegedly with the bad orndorff arm if paul orndorff and him don't allegedly have an altercation uh, i shouldn't even say allegedly everyone admits that the altercation (laughs) happened but uh yeah if that hadn't happened and if vader had stayed there again you're going into monday nitro 95 the first Group of guys they bring in. You got Luger's back. You have Eddie Guerrero comes in. Sabu's on those early ones. They start stacking for what WCW would become in 96. The cruiserweights, the international wrestlers. Really just an amazing roster. How would Vader have fit in with that? I think he would have fit in pretty well. I mean, not just the cruiserweights. I just think about how the roster became so crowded and all the guys who come in or come back in that he hadn't really worked with. I I mean, think about this even for a second, especially since Luger does turn heel kind of for a while. Luger's actually pretty good in late 95, early 96. I would have been very curious to see what him and Vader could have done together in that period. Luger's actually very good in a lot of different points in his career, but we're not supposed to talk about that. We're supposed to say he was awful and he was never good. Yeah, so there's that. I think Vader and Alex Wright would have been very interesting. What about against the cruiserweights in terms of like the whole giant big wrestler versus a smaller guy? We've seen that formula work with guys before. I'm not saying Vader versus Rey Mysterio. That may have been a little bit ridiculous. Eddie Guerrero. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Benoit stylistically probably would have been 
the best matchup. It would have been the hardest hitting of the matches for sure. Yeah, I think Guerrero would have worked well with him, though. The weird thing with Vader, though, is that even though you can think of a lot of examples that other bigger guys did, he really doesn't have a lot of matches like that in general. No, that's why I'm saying it. I'm trying to think of it, and I can't think of any examples. I mean, and I'm sure there are. I mean, The only one I think of is that six-man in New Japan with Liger from 89. And what's it like him working with Liger? And that's early at Liger. I mean, it's really good, and it's a lot of like cat and mouse fun stuff, but it, it's you know it's not the whole match because there's a six-man. That's the only one I can really think of off the top of my head. If Sabu sometimes happy, somehow happened, excuse me, that would have been something. I feel like I'm forgetting something real obvious. In terms but I mean, of he's there. He's a baby head. face. The Dungeon of Doom is feuding with Hogan, and eventually the NWO happens. Vader being in that mix would have been very interesting. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And I kind of wonder, like, even him against some of the NWO guys, is he able to kind of motivate them into a good, into a really good match? Like, well, let's not go crazy. Come on. Well, that's what I, when I say motivate, it's like you know, for all of his well, Scott Hall was really good by that point in his career. It's just in WCW, he doesn't really do anything. Yeah, I mean, X Pac was still capable of doing some really good stuff, but I don't think Vader yeah. was going to get a great match out of Kevin Nash. And that's not even a shot at Kevin Nash. I just don't think. At that point in time, after he goes to WCW, Kevin Nash was going to have a great match with Vader. And I think there were only specific guys that he could have a really excellent match with. Yeah. yeah. The one that we could have gotten based on the being in the company together, but didn't is Vader and Savage. And it's actually kind of amazing that they didn't do it. They had to have worked against each other with tag matches in 90. No, but not as a singles, though. Not as a singles program. See, that that's what I mean, because they did do tags, obviously. Yeah. I mean, the Slamboree is Hogan and Savage against Flair and Vader, right? Is that the one where Savage gives Hogan the elbow drop to wake him up? No, 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 no. That's uh, the January Clash against okay. uh, Beefcake and Sullivan. <laughs> okay, yeah. One of the most ridiculous moments in wrestling history was Randy Savage giving his finisher to Hulk Hogan to wake him up so that he would Hulk up and come back to normal. And then after the match, he no-sells Vader's powerbomb. Good times. Well, Bix, we can go on all day about Vader. I guess when it comes down to it and you have to look at his legacy, you know, a lot of people are saying the same things. A lot of people are saying best big guy wrestler of all time. But what really is his legacy? I think his legacy, at least more so than it is, should be as someone who kept WCW going during the darkest period for business in the history of American pro wrestling. They weren't thriving like internationally or whatever the way that wwf was although they actually they did do well on foreign tours until they just kind of started to do it too much and went to the smaller markets too much yeah they had galoob toys in england when they stopped making them here in america yeah but no they were drawing well internationally actually but uh when they tried for the most part but when you really look at how bad things got that he was able to keep wcw interesting and all that and I think that's an achievement in a way, but overall, I think it's just it's being this kind of kind of one of the last guys to really have that aura of something special and dangerous and scary and carrying that with him for so long. And even if he lost it for a bit in WWF, you know, he, like we said, he went to all Japan and he's Vader again. So he's one of those last guys to really have that something, have that like where you're maybe not scared of him, but you believed Vader. And that's, I think, what counted. 
We're going to spend a few minutes here with our pal, popular co-host Scott Cornish. He's not at his usual location, so the audio may not be as perfect as it usually is. But Scott, I wanted to ask you about <laughs> Vader. You usually have a funny anecdote about everybody. Any funny anecdotes about Vader? Oh, yeah. Well, sort of a funny anecdote. Yeah. Uh, in 1996, uh, my friend Greg Greenland and I went to Madison Square Garden to see Survivor Series at a big pay-per-view, a bunch of good matches, a bunch of strange uh, occurrences during that particular show uh, for older fans of the top 10. That was the night that uh, when Greg and I took our seats in uh, Madison Square Garden, as we were going down our row, we realized that we were seated next to the 35-year-old kid, Dave Baumkraft. <laughs> that's, that's how the evening started. But uh, the evening ended. This is one of the first times I'd ever been at a, like a hotel bar scene with a bunch of wrestlers. So there was a, a bar near the airport near LaGuardia, I think. Uh, and that's yeah. where the post-Survivor series, were you at this thing? I was there the night before. Night before. Okay. Well, it's all kinds of people. With Tracy Smothers and Ron Simmons. Oh yeah. I had a different Ron Simmons story. If you want to digress, I was standing up near the, both things happened while I was standing at the bar. Ron Simmons is standing at the bar right near me and he's watching a football game on television. This is after Survivor Series back at the hotel bar. And um, a woman who's standing next to him is sort of talking and talking and talking. And I don't know if they were together or what they were, but as she's watching the game, she's saying to all people, she's saying to Ron Simmons, and she obviously doesn't know who he is. And she goes, boy, football is a stupid game. And I think that's where he first coined the the phrase, damn. (laughs) Like, I don't know, with one ridiculous story after another. Oh, that is a stupid game. I never liked football. I don't know. But at one point, I'm standing at that very same bar, and I'm leaning against a a stool near the bar. And somebody, in the nicest, most polite way possible, comes up behind me. They get a tap on the shoulder and says, hey, buddy, do you mind if I uh, use that chair? My knee's all messed up. And no problem. I turn around, and it's. Big, big Raider. <laughs> oh, what am I going to say? He was so nice about it. Of course, you're going to give him the chair, but it's also Vader. <laughs> so it's not like I'm going to say, all right, I got your own chair. You know? But uh, yeah, I was really somehow surprised. Not that I expected him to be in Vader character, but how uh, sort of soft spoken and humble he was. And a couple of years later, met him again out at Cauliflower Rally in Las Vegas. And I think he had gone out there because Harley was there that year, Harley Race. And they hadn't seen each other in a very long time. So I got to meet both him and Harley Race out there in Las Vegas. Same thing. The guy was very soft-spoken and nice. Uh, and the two short uh, instances where I got to meet him. That's really like condolences to his family and all his fans. That's a, as I grow older, I, I get more, <laughs> more aware of just how young all his older people are. i kind of astonished to see that he was as young as 63. Not that I thought he was older but it just shows that I have no awareness of my own age. (laughs) We continue to talk about Vader here today on the Super Podcast. I am now joined by a very popular man here on the program. You hear me with him each and every week at least once, sometimes many more times than that, and that, of course, is Mr. Jim Cornette. Jim, thanks for being here today. Of course, so many people think of you when they think of Vader because you did manage him in the WWF. 
Yeah, and and uh, here we, you know, here we go again with another guy who, and I, I don't even know, I, because you, you surprised me first of all uh, with the news a little bit earlier today because I was incommunicado from the outside world, and how old was Leon? Sixty-three. Sixty-three, and and because he got a late start in wrestling because he'd played put football before and etc. So people, you know, of, of his generation wouldn't you wouldn't think they're that old, but still. Uh, you know, we knew that he had uh, heart problems that he'd he'd talked about recently, and and he'd been in and out of uh, bad health, and, and but at the same time he was still continuing to wrestle uh, on occasion up until you know not long ago, and you know he's just such a bull. You think you know uh, that he's another one of those guys. You think well, nothing can hurt him, but but anyway, um, I I did manage him for that year in in WWF, and I wish. I wish both it had been longer, and I wish it had turned out better for him at least, uh, because, it, and I don't. I was always a big fan of of Vader, and I saw him from the time that they debuted him, you know, in New Japan with the the entire gimmick, and you know, he had the matches with Anoki. Um, I had seen him obviously as you know Leon Baby Bull White on the AWA show that not many people were watching when you know when they broke him in and. and but you could tell he was a, a genetic freak because he could move for that size. You know, even he was like an in shape, really athletic crusher Blackwell. It just, you know, amazing agility and, and to be able to move around and move that quick for a guy that size. But especially in WCW, he got over there better than almost anybody else could get over in WCW at that point in time, right? It wasn't, a, you know, a great period for business, but he was the guy for a long time there. And those matches with Cactus and Flair and, <clears throat> you know, all those guys, because it was, it was, I think I'm leading up to something. I was a fan of Vader from those places uh, where he could really be himself. And it was it it just it completely turned around in the WWF. Even though he had a pretty good run, it wasn't what it should have been because he was like a fish out of water there. When you think about it, uh, he had been in New Japan and and the Japanese style. Where I mean, my God, fucking Hanson knocked his fucking eye out, right? And they kept they worked another ten minutes and they beat each other up over there. There was and it was big money in his spot and spots like that in those days. So they were making the money and. In WCW, because of the contracts, there was big money on top, and and you know guys were willing to to put up with it, and it was a more athletic oriented wrestling product because it was the Southern wrestling branch where you know yeah there's gonna be some wild shit and there's gonna be potatoes, but immediately when he goes to the WWF the, at the time you know uh, the click controlled a lot and they wanted to work with each other because they weren't gonna get hurt. And Leon comes in like it's Japan and it's WCW and he's physical, right? And I mean, you could hear people and see people squealing. And guys like Savio Vega liked it. They, he looked forward to working with Leon on a pay-per-view. But as as everybody knows, and Michaels did not like it at all. And I mean, yes, it's easy for me to say, oh, you know, it's just Vader. He's not this big 400-pound fucker beating the shit out of me, right? But at the same time, there's something to be said for a guy being dangerous or hurting people or hitting too hard like that. And there's also something to be said for it ain't ballet and, and shit happens. But, and those two guys were on the complete opposite ends of the spectrum. So that it just it wasn't going to pan out. But also, I don't know if I've ever talked about this before. Vince didn't get Vader because he had never seen Vader before. 
before he came to to meet him like he does with a lot of guys. Um, when they come up to meet Vince is the first time he's ever seen you wrestle or anything else. So the first glance that, and of course he'd been told all oh, Vader's, you know, Jim Ross was for him. I put a word in when I found out they were talking to him for whatever that was worth. But I mean, it was already in the works. You know, uh, Jr. would push for a lot of those guys because he'd worked with them in WCW and they would describe whoever, but then Vince would meet the guy and whatever his first impression was, uh, uh, you know, Mark Marrow, he thought he was getting Johnny B. Bad because he'd heard about that. And, you know, he got Mark Marrow. Um, but the, the impression was Sable or uh, Cactus Jack was going to be Mankind the Mutilator from the basement or whatever, the cellar before, you know, a little bit of sanity prevailed and they modified it. And Vince wanted to make Vader the Mastodon. Because when he met him, he said he looks like a bull elephant, right? He he was he loved that he would say Mastodon in that Vince voice, like he'd pronounce it extra. You know, the WWF's never had a Mastodon. He liked to say that when he come up with a gimmick that had never been done before by that name. And I'm like, you know, and of course, they they told me shortly before Leon came in, I was going to manage him. And so I'm excited because I'm like, oh my God, it's fucking Vader. Vader's going to lay waste to motherfuckers around here, right? This will jack things up significantly. But then I hear Vince start talking about the Mastodon, and I'm starting to have fucking horrible mental visions of Yukon Moose Cholak updated under another name where he's wearing a fucking <laughs> elephant head with the tusks or something. I'm like, oh my God. And, and I tried as best I could once again to uh, – you know, argue as did almost everybody else. I think even Bruce, I think even Bruce went, you know, a lot of people know him as Vader. Well, we'll change the name gradually, pal. We'll move in a formerly known as Vader. No. And, and thankfully once it got started, right. And, and once again, it was an odd deal that they did because everybody remembers the angle he debuted on out in California where he hospitalized gorilla monsoon, right. Which hadn't oh, been yeah. done like the previous 10 years. Nobody fucked with gorilla. And I can't remember the particulars, and I'll leave that somebody else uh, that uh, you know remembers better. But they knew that Leon needed uh, surgery on a bad shoulder. Now, whether they were led to believe or whether the belief was by everybody that it was less serious and less time-consuming what it was, I don't fucking know. But they ha- came up with the idea they'd have him debut – and just, you know, smash him over and then do the angle with Gorilla Monsoon and boom, and suspend him for a month. And then he'd cut, we'd, I'd talk about it and then he'd come back. Well, I can't remember how long it was, but it was a lot longer than a month. He was out. And they kind of, they, he always claimed they rushed him back. And I believe it maybe um, when, when he did come back and he had gained some weight which at his size, he didn't have a lot of leeway there between, you know, he was still, a, you know, a guy could move at that size. But anyway, so they rushed him back from surgery, went into best shape. And then that's when Vince not getting him. For example, the night that I introduced him on TV for that angle. Of course I did. I can't remember what my buildup even was, but finally I led into and finally it's time. And the people, because uh, I think it was a surprise, wasn't it, that he was going to be there? But it's time. It's surprise. He's coming out right then. It's time. It's time. It's Vader time and did the fucking thing and everybody blew and it was a big star fucking welcome. Right. But a lot of people were cheering. 
And then, and actually, I think it's still a lot of people were kind of getting into it when he hospitalized, when he splashed Gorilla and did all that shit, right? And when Gorilla fired up with the chops on the comeback. Oh, yeah. But then Vince is telling me, well, don't say Vader time. What do you mean? Well, people like it. They're cheer- and of, all, of, of that cast of fucking Gilligan's Island talent roster they had in the mid-90s where uh, heels were wearing turkey suits and shit. He, uh, he didn't want the people to cheer a heel mannerism when this is a major star, former world champion from the other company, which is another thing that doomed him because immediately – they didn't know to treat him like that. And Kevin Dunn would whisper in Vince's ear, well, I was just the champion down there. Who gives a shit? Right. And, and just all that mindset. So even though they put him over big, there was no capitalization on that. That should have been, this is the fucking guy that dominated all wrestling everywhere in the country. You know where I'm going with that. And he said, don't do Vader time and don't do the hand signal. Well, what the fuck am I supposed to do? You did that even before you managed him. Well, ex- yes, exactly. To you know, get the so it, he he didn't understand how how and why Vader was over. Vince didn't at that point, and started trying to push him like a WWF push. And then he got in the ring with Michaels, and that was not going to work on a long term basis. So that was the first year, and then by the end of the year, uh, you know, and I, I see, I never managed him full time. We did TV, we did pay per views. And I did the big shows like The Garden. I mean, one time they flew me all the way out to Anaheim because it was Vader and Michaels of Philly Spectrum, major house shows. But I was also in the office on a creative team. And I was also doing uh, television commentary, whether it be filling in on Raw or syndication or whatever. So I didn't actually ever do the whole road tour of house shows. And like TV weekend, when we only did uh, TV once a month, I would go in and do the Saturday and Sunday shows before that or whatever. Um, so, you know, it, 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 he had a part-time manager, but they didn't really count house shows in those days. I and mean, what they were drawing at that period of time, they really shouldn't have. So finally they, they took me out of managing at the end of the year and, and he, it, it was inherited and signed or bought, or somehow we transitioned to Paul Bear at that point. And I love Percy and I love Leon, but I think maybe for the, for the contrast, it was interesting, but I don't know that they looked like they fit. And, and I thought from, from that point on, Vader was just, was a guy on the WWF roster instead of, he needed to be the guy that stood over to the side and was kind of as big as everybody else on his own. So he, he did, he had a nice run in WWF, but it could have been better had everybody understood everybody. And, and I think that still his WCW and his Japanese stuff is going to be, you know, that's when, and I mean, still, you know, he and Michaels, except for when Michaels had a temper tantrum, when he didn't move on the elbow, uh, they had a great pay-per-view match and they turned it in at the house shows for the period of time it lasted, but he didn't get to really be Vader and dominant. You know, there were a string of guys, whether it was Flair or Mick Foley or Joe Thurman, who had injuries in matches with Vader. It was easy to watch him and see that he was a bit more physical than a King Kong Bundy or a previous generation super heavyweight wrestler. And he had a reputation. He had an aura about him that he was dangerous, that he could shoot on you if he wanted to, and that he would hurt <laughs> But guys. Leon, Leon couldn't, let's, let's clarify, Leon couldn't shoot wrestle for shit. But he was 400 pounds and knock you fucking out and, and kill you and beat you up. But he wasn't a shooter shooter. Let's just cl- clarify. In terms of the in-ring style, the stiffness, 
what is fair in terms of the complaints you hear? What is unfair when, you know, when Shawn Michaels is obviously being a little bit too much. Of well, a- now, yeah, no. You, and uh, who did you mention on the list that, that uh, you just mentioned the injured uh, Flair Thurman and Foley? Well, but see, there's an asterisk by each one of those. Mick kind of wanted him to. Yeah, he admitted it in his book. I mean, either he let, he was letting him hard weigh him, or he did that splash on the fucking entryway because he had the contract and he was thinking, well, if this or the Lloyds or whatever, he's thinking like, well, fuck, if this ends my career, you know, I mean, it was a dark time for Cactus. He was doing shit to get over or get out one or the other. But so you can't really blame Leon for any of that because Cactus was willing. And if you're willing with a guy that's fucking that physical anyway, then obviously. Um, with Flair, what did, what happened with the Flair incident? Because I can't remember exactly what happened. I believe it was just over stiffness. It was just potato after potato. He yeah. blew up his mouth, I remember. That was the big, after Sid got in trouble for the Arn Anderson thing and got fired, his title shot went to Flair at Starcade 93. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I got to be honest with you because it was Charlotte. I bet Rick probably told him, don't worry about it. Um, he may have he may have afterwards had buyer's regret on that, but it was Charlotte. It was his career. It was Starcade. And Rick knew why Leon was over. So, I mean, he didn't drop him on his head or anything. He's, you know, I have a feeling Rick didn't necessarily have a problem. But with Thurman, I I, got to be honest, and even under the circumstances, I hate that it's this, but that was completely Leon's fault. Because it it was almost like Yokozuna. (sighs) Yokozuna a couple times could have fucking killed one of those guys if he just landed in the right place. Um, with the bonsai because he had the different bonsai to get over on television um, than he did with the top guys in house shows or or on angles. And the job guys knew going in, uh, you know, but a a couple of times I saw it, I was even like, no, you know, that was, he shouldn't have done that, right? Because that could have fucking hurt somebody bad. But that was also the mentality back in those days in the business. Hey, you know, I've got to get over on TV. The, the job guys would not be have would not have a job if I was not doing this shit. But with Leon, it was the same thing. Only the power bombs more dangerous because you can fold somebody up, and you he just picked the fucking guy up, and it wasn't much effort, and fucking flung him down. I didn't think he looked particularly careful, and that was it was kind of I think it was carelessness. But you know, once again, that added to the aura. Uh, it just, it was, it was not good for the Mr. Thurman. He debuted in WCW in 1990. Uh, he was only doing shots here and there because he did have those Japanese commitments, but had you talked about him at all when you were still on the booking committee and what was the word in the locker room when he showed up? Had people heard about him? What did people think of him? Uh, yeah, well, no, I wasn't on the booking committee because he came in toward the fall of 1990. And I remember he was at Halloween Havoc in, uh, Chicago, definitely. But did you guys uh, talk I remember about that. It? I mean, by that point, he was out there. Was there ever any talk about bringing him in during the flare? N- no, no. It's simply because at that point in time, um, you know, I mean, I, I knew what was going on because I just said I watched the tapes. But uh, my mind to suggest him was not, uh, at, you know, uh, th- we were having a hard enough time getting them to pay quality American talent that we could use full time without trying to get them to hire away a uh, a guy to do part time shots for more money per capita than, you know, from J- from New Japan. But then by the time that Jim Ross got in there after after Flair, it went to a committee again and then it was Ole and Ole's talking to Hanson. 
And Hanson obviously is, hey, this fucking guy, and JR is not going to turn it. So the, the, it was more favorable politically even three or four months later, right? So they and, and, and it made a difference. And, and for the, yeah, some of the guys definitely knew because some of the guys went to Japan. And, and uh, you know, it made it a difference that we had an attraction like that. But I, it, I think it was it also they didn't get him started really with anything meaningful for what the first however long because he was tied up and only making pay per view appearances or special shots. He would make those shots with that helmet slash shoulder pad thing, and boy was that impressive. Well, yeah, but that and see that was another thing, and, and that's the first time I'd met Leon was uh, I think it was right around Halloween Havoc because I remember talking to him a little while about the gimmick that night, and and I, it was in Chicago, and and ended up then. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, wife at the time, her parents lived in the area and had come there to take us out to dinner. And that's the night that, that I was late rolling in the ring around a cameraman and, and Bobby hit me with a tackle in the jaw and dislocated my jaw. So they took us out for a steak. I couldn't chew. But he, my father-in-law had parked behind Leon and Leon came in after the matches. The matches weren't all the way over, but he was trying to get out and we were about to get out. And he come in, hey, who parked behind me? I said, oh, Leon, I'm sorry, that's my father-in-law. Oh, that's okay, that's okay. And then he turned into Teddy Bear again. He, he, could, he could turn in an instant from to Teddy Bear. But uh, anyway, I was talking to him about the gimmick. At, the, at the, the height of it, when he brought the whole shooting match and it shot off and everything, not only was it an extra plane ticket to sit the fucking thing in the seat next to him, <laughs> but he also brought a guy that remote control worked the fucking thing and pushed the buttons for the steam until until finally I think they they uh, reduced the wardrobe budget by I think figuring out a way for him to press a button and something happened but but yeah it was a goddamn production and it was cool what do you think his legacy is as we look back on his life and his career in terms of the big man in professional wrestling I brought up Bundy earlier. I don't want to make an unfair comparison from one guy to another. You brought up Moose Sholak. That's even more unfair. <laughs> um, but in terms of what Vader was and what he did and how he wrestled, what do you think his legacy is? Well, I think th- the reason why that he was so convincing at what he did and, and et cetera, it's, even though uh, Leon personally was very little like Vader, right? He was sometimes a big teddy bear and he would, he would cry at, at, you know, crippled children, but coming from football and then a brief period of time in the AWA, but being around Ganya, who was old school as and shoot oriented and, and uh, professional athlete oriented. Vern Ganya was an NCAA heavyweight champion. And then being in Japan where it was, it, he, he truly treated himself as if he was still a professional athlete, even though he was in a worked business. And inside the ring, a lot of times outside the ring, he took it as a shoot and he was a pro athlete and he was part of a league or a team, not, you know, he he had that mindset. And that's why he got over and stood out in a lot of cases because he could physically back that up. And sometimes that's why he got uh, heat in the office sometimes, because a lot of the offices in those days liked it where you treated it like a shootout in public, but you knew it was a work in private. And And a lot of times he didn't. He didn't know some things were work about the business or didn't feel like they should be there. And, and then when, I, when he became our man in Kuwait and snatched the fucking, he went, <laughs> he went farther than I would have in Kuwait to protect the business. I'll tell you that, snatching that fucking guy. And they almost didn't let him go. Well, for listeners who don't know what that was, he was on a television show, I think with The Undertaker, 
Yes, who who sat there and just <laughs> never said a word, didn't move. He was he just just in case a machine gun came out, he was not going to get jumpy. But anyway, go ahead. Vader grabbed the reporter, being upset with the line of questioning, and that was it for Vader on that tour because he ended up what getting detained and well, yeah, well, well but now here's the thing: they've set up it's a big tour, and they're doing like three or four shows in Kuwait or in the, that region. And it's a big morning show, Good Morning Kuwait or whatever. And it's they've set up for two of their big stars to be there and be interviewed. And even Undertaker being interviewed was a big fucking deal, even in Kuwait, right? And the 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 host was then went straight to, well, you know, this is all a showbiz and a sham, and kind of it was kind of backhanded about it. If if they're gonna do the fucking thing, don't shit on the guy as soon as you get him on the set, right? So Leon, so what did you say? <laughs> And he repeated it, and Leon said, hey, he starts cutting the promo on him, and then he reaches over with that big right paw. When when we did promos sometimes, and Leon was supposed to be out of control, and he'd be raging, and he would grab me by the lapels of the jacket and cinch me up, and I'd try to calm him down, right, show how out of control he was. He, I had to start shaving my chest. He would pull every goddamn hair. Out of my fucking chest, he the b- b- coloring of his black leather gloves would come off on my shirt and my jacket. He'd squeeze so hard, and he snatched that fucking guy by the fucking tie and brought him over. Do you think I'm a fake or whatever? The f- I can't even remember what he said now. And that guy, I'm sure, just evacuated all over himself. His bowels were as empty as fucking Vince Russo's fucking brain, and they detained him for assault and when the guys moved on the tour was over and the guys moved left the country that he was still there and and when i was several days that week for whatever reason we were at vince's house i remember doing writing sessions because vince was getting phone calls from the office all the time an update on our man in kuwait and i, I mean he's finally he did some apologizing and then they did some string pulling and and they let him go but they weren't going to let him out of kuwait until they were happy that he wasn't going to do that anymore, apparently. So, but he was he was standing up for the business, but he picked a hell of a venue to do it. Was there resentment over him getting into that situation? Um, it, well, not not with the boys. I mean, it, the boys that liked him thought, "Well, that's our Leon," and the boys that didn't like him thought, "Well, that's Leon." But it wasn't anything out of the way. But Vince was not <laughs> Vince was not a happy man. And I think that's, once again, Vince, there was something about Leon and something about Vince that just, when they got together somehow, it just didn't, it didn't click or it didn't work or, I don't know. I mean, they were always very cordial to each other, but Vince didn't get Leon, and I don't know if Leon ever got how to talk to Vince. It's not like they were screaming at each other. I don't want to start any rumors. They were not fussing and yelling, but I don't think they understood. They were two people that didn't understand each other. Well, I don't want to end on that note. I was asking you about his legacy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but but no, but his legacy, more importantly to me, is I think as a modern, modern, the first of the modern era big men that could really be athletic and go and get over. And, you know, and I like me some King Kong Bundy. Uh, but his big run in the WWF, he was a fearsome heel, but he was not the most athletic, you know, guy moving around and taking bumps and shit. You know, when you got Leon doing the shit he could do and at that size and that convincingly, um, he would set a standard for big guys to follow. And, uh, I mean, Bam Bam Bigelow was probably a better worker, but I think 
Leon or Vader got probably over as, as a bigger badass. So I think that's that's you know probably is going to be his legacy from Japan and from being dominant in WCW, but just having all those classic matches with a lot of world class guys when he was already well he was sixty two or sixty three he just said and he it was thirty years ago in nineteen eighty eight when he was really or eighty seven the first year of the Vader gimmick so the point is he was already in his in his mid thirties by the time he started the thing and he was forty ish. When he was in WCW and, and Japan having those major matches in the early 90s. So, you know, he started later. He would have had a lot longer career. Uh, but uh, he, he changed the business in a lot of different ways, you know, for that, that period of time. Well, there it is. I hope you understand this show's a little briefer than usual, but we wanted to get something out there quickly for all of you 605ers who, of course, have heard the news today as we're recording about the passing of Vader. John, as we begin to wrap things up, what do you think Vader's legacy is? You know what? He is If he is not the best big man in the history of the pro wrestling business, he is at least in the team picture. I, off the top of my head, I would say Hanson, Vader, Brody. So that's, that's heavy praise, and Vader was a lot bigger than Hanson, so that, that means something. And of course, he is someone that universally is considered, at least like you just said, one of the very, very best big men. And so many people have come out and said he was the best, and so many fans will remember him. As we wrap things up, you can listen to John's new show, Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam and Sean Goodwin each and every week by going to McAdamPod.com or looking for Stick to Wrestling wherever you find your favorite podcast. And if you subscribe on iTunes, please leave a positive review and a five-star rating. It really does help. Of course, if you want to get in touch with the show, you guys know what to do. Twitter, at 605pod. Facebook, facebook.com slash superpodcast. Me, at Great Brian Last on Twitter. And that's it. For John McAdam, I'm the Great Brian Last. Tally-ho!